A couple of things that I believe to be true. Climate change is real. Decarbonization work needs to be accelerated. Nobody owns the ocean. And change is part of every great business and every great industry. But in order for effective change management to happen, all stakeholders need to be brought to the table to make the best decision possible. Welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a new podcast from Consensus Digital Media. I'm Connor Gaughan, the host of the pod, where we talk to innovators and entrepreneurs who have built businesses and careers that do well while doing good. If you had told me when we recorded this episode a few months ago that lobsters would be part of the national debate, I'm not sure I would have believed it. But over the last few weeks, it's become a reality. As I followed the different sides of the current discussion on lobstering, one thing's clear. There's an untold story, something the headlines are missing. For the last few decades, sustainability efforts and ocean conservation standards have been pioneered by the Maine lobster industry. As our guest today will tell you, Maine lobstermen were the original chief sustainability officers. And to this day, these guys are focused on doing right by the ocean and the local fishing community. Today, I talk with the entrepreneurs behind Luke's Lobster, a family-owned Maine seafood business founded by third-generation lobsterman Luke Holden and business partner Ben Conniff. What began as a tiny lobster roll shack in New York City now includes locations in 10 U.S. states, Japan, and Singapore a seafood purchasing and production business, and products in grocery stores across the country. Throughout their incredible growth, Luke and Ben's commitment to sustainability and putting stakeholders above profits has earned them customers, accolades, and a B Corp certification. As the environmental and coastal fishing communities work towards a more sustainable vision of the future, Luke's is certain to be a key voice working to help find consensus in the conversation. My name is Ben Conniff. I'm co-founder and chief innovation officer at Luke's Lobster. Ben is the person that everybody on this team turns to and is constantly checking themselves and their ideas against. You know, Ben is good and, and he wants to make more good and he's been that guy since day one. All right. And Luke? My name is Luke Holden. I'm the founder and CEO of Luke's Lobster. He is the spiritual leader. Uh, he's the inspiration. He's the story behind the company, but he's also in a very real way driving the boat. He's the one at the helm, making sure that we're all pointed in the same direction and moving forward at all times. So before we get into the story of Luke's, let's hear a little more about you two and your journey towards building this amazing company. I'm actually a third generation lobsterman, and my father was the very first licensed lobster processor in the state of Maine. So I grew up on the back of boats, built a boat in high school, and hand hauled 150 lobster traps with my youngest brother being my sternman. I was in and out of uh, my dad's production businesses, in and out of his lobster pounds and lobster wharfs, and lobster. Working waterfront are very much a part of me. Okay. So Luke's on the waterfront. Ben, tell us a little bit about yourself. Let's start with the first job you've ever had. It was in a donut shop. I spent seven summers starting when I was 14, pumping the jelly and putting the frosting on and then cranking up these old school pickup windows at this old donut shack near the beach. That's where I learned my unique brand of hospitality as well as a a very specific culinary skill. And what came next after the donut shop? 
you landed in journalism and food writing. How, how'd you get there? I took two different internships. One was at uh, WNYC and the other was at Playboy. Somewhat different ends of the media spectrum, but I got a lot of experience doing a lot of different types of journalism there. And it was after those two internships that I decided that I wanted to focus on food, spent a little while in food journalism, and then decided I would cut the journalism part out and just focus on the food. This sounds an awful lot like one of the common themes I've found since starting Consensus. Food has a way of bringing people together. Luke, you're out there on the water catching food. Ben, you're writing about it. There's something really lovely about the shared foundation in food that I think unites us all as a country. Where do you think it comes from? Yeah. Luke's Lobster, when we started back in 2009, was really an opportunity to reconnect with those roots and reconnect with an industry that I'm very passionate about and feel very privileged to be a leader of the main lobster industry and in a business that's ultimately working very smartly to create value for the fishery and all of its stakeholders. I read that last year, the Maine lobster industry skyrocketed from around $300 million to over $725 million. Luke, when you think back to your memories as a kid on the boat with your dad, did you ever consider that this industry could be so big and such a driver of economic activity in your home state? And on top of that, your dad obviously helped grow this industry to what it is now. How does it feel to not only be carrying the torch, but doing so amidst a period of such rapid growth? I feel very privileged to have been part of the industry for for the last 13 years, starting, running, growing, and leading Luke's Lobster. Back in 2009, the boat price to fishermen was somewhere between 2 and $3 per pound for a live lobster. And the state was probably harvesting somewhere around 90 to 100 million pounds of live lobster a year. You look at 2021 and the average boat price was around $7 to $7.50 a pound. And we harvested about 120 million pounds of live lobster. So we've increased supply and we've dramatically grown demand in a way that has more than tripled the price to the fishing communities. Put that into perspective for us. Why is that so important? The reason that that is so significant is when you look up and down the the coast of Maine, a lot of the economic engine that drives what makes Maine very special, these quintessential coastal communities, are the fishing communities. There's such a multiplier when a fisherman gets paid X, his or her help gets paid a proportion of that value. And then the whole industry that supports those fishing communities, whether it's those working building or working on boats or selling fuel or buying inventory, selling baits, then all of the support that goes into producing and processing lobster, all the wages, all of the build of materials that go into producing all those products. It is just such a huge multiplier. That's such a huge impact. On a personal level, as you think back to those days sitting on the back of the boat with your dad, Did you ever think that you'd be continuing or even expanding on your family's legacy? I certainly reminisce about the wonderful upbringing that I had, and and I get to kind of relive it. I've got two little girls now with a third child on the way, and the two and three-year-old go out lobstering with me now. I love 
commercial bluefin tuna fishing. So whenever I get a tuna, we call it mom and, and have the kids show up to see the fish. And I get to talk about the quality of the fish with them. And that's a very neat heritage role of the industry that I get to pass on. And, you know, my dad's sitting there at the top of the hoist, lifting up the, the bucket of lobsters and putting a pail of cookies down for my daughter for payment, or he's the one lifting the tuna up and uh, giving me a that a boy when uh, we've been out there for a couple of days trying to catch one of these. So the heritage side of it is exceptionally meaningful and that extends beyond you know my family. So Luke's is a rapidly growing business in a rapidly growing industry, but obviously it didn't start out like that. Luke, can you walk me through your career before founding Luke's Lobster? So obviously I came from a working family. My mother's a special ed teacher and my father was a, a bootstrap entrepreneur. And it was very important to my parents and ultimately me that I went to college. And what success did not look like was going to Georgetown, taking a bunch of student debt and being a lobsterman during the summer. Like that's what I was doing. That's what I wanted to do. But my parents kind of looked at me very squarely and said, if you think we're going to take a portion of this debt and allow you to take a portion of this debt and just have you continue to be a, a lobsterman when we could teach you how to do that, you're out of your mind. All right. So you graduate from Georgetown and start to work as an investment banker for a while. And then the pivot. I think this is really common these days. I remember as I left investment banking and began in the media world, I, I felt like it was going through a quarter-life crisis just to even get to my pivot. Luke, when did you feel that it was time to leave the banking world for the path less traveled as an entrepreneur? And honestly, I, I liked the job and I was fine at performing the job, but it was really two, three years into it that I realized that I was just sort of stuck in a pattern of work that really didn't drive a lot of passion. It didn't, it really didn't drive a lot of excitement. And that for me was something that you know, I grew up with. My mother loved being a teacher. It was part of who she was. You know, my father works just like all small business leaders do. We work all the time, but if you love it, it doesn't really feel like work. It's just, it's part of the lifestyle that you, that you choose. And investment banking felt like work. And you know, Luke's is stressful at times, but it never really feels like work. Right. Ben, I'm curious if you had the same moment or, or a change of heart. There was one moment. It was when I had learned about a group of historic schooners in Maine that take tours out on Penobscot Bay, but their galley kitchens are all historic. So I pitched a publication to write an article about it spent four days on this boat, just in Penobscot Bay is probably the most beautiful place on the planet, getting out on the water, eating amazing seafood from Maine, doing a lobster bake. And I thought, yeah, this is fun to be able to write about this stuff, but how much more fun would it be to be the cook down in the kitchen or to be involved in, in this food industry in a more meaningful way? So really sparked the love of Maine, the love of the kitchen, the love of the food. And then on top of that, when the publication wouldn't pay my travel expenses and wouldn't, wouldn't even cut me a check for the story until they ran it a year later, I thought, eh, this isn't exactly a sustainable career either. So might as well take my chances and throw my hat in the ring and, and go hunting on Craigslist for a food industry job. 
And as luck would have it, I found somebody from Maine looking to start a Maine-oriented restaurant company. And it was clearly fate for me. The story of how you two actually met to start Luke's is pretty crazy. Ben, you obviously just alluded to Craigslist, but could you guys give us the full story? Sure. So in that moment, I got back from that trip to Maine in June and I jumped on Craigslist and I was looking for any foot in the door in the food industry I could find. I was applying to dishwasher jobs and counter service jobs and really anything out there. And I, I wasn't getting a lot of bites. It wasn't exactly the job market that it is today for people who wanted to work in restaurants. So I was getting frustrated, but I was still looking. And then, you know, I found this post on Craigslist saying, I have this great idea for a business, but I, I need some pretty undefined level of help to get it going. And I thought, I don't know, I couldn't get a response to the dishwasher. Am I going to get a response from somebody looking for a business partner? But I figured it was worth a shot. and you know, sent in the email. And I think within a day, I'd heard back and it was super exciting. As Ben sort of described, they just wrote a post that said a little bit about me and my and my family and connection to the resource and a little bit about uh, what I was trying to achieve and a whole lot of nothing about what the specifics were. I really wasn't sure what the day today was going to look like. And I didn't really know what the business was going to look like. I just kind of knew that I wanted to serve the best damn quality lobster roll that New York City had ever seen. I wanted to do it at the best price possible. And and I wanted to do it in a format that treated people the way you'd like to be treated. What you're describing certainly sounds like a tall order. I know from my experiences how hard it is to find the right founding team. And everyone has differing opinions on what finding a co-founder or business partner should look like. What was it about Ben that stood out? I got north of 500 applicants and it was a wide array of different types of candidates. And Ben's application, beyond the fact that he had clear skills in storytelling, it's almost like he understood how I thought because he brought together a lot of the the different unorganized thoughts in my head into a cohesive story and plan. But one thing I did was I... I said, all right, we're, f- we're putting you on a plane and we're flying you up to meet my dad and my uncle. And we're going to see what they think and see what you think. So Ben, you get off the plane in Maine and what are you thinking? I didn't know what to expect. I'd taken odd jobs here and there with folks in the finance industry who had side dreams and they'd mostly been nuts. <laughs> and they hadn't been great experiences. But as Luke said, I was, I was a 40-hour guy. I'd say yes to any job as long as it was a 40-hour-a-week job. And then suddenly I I got up there in Maine and I saw this isn't somebody with some fly-by-night plan. This is generations of heritage. This is just an extremely involved industry that's grounded in this processing business that's that's been developed over decades. And all the things that Luke had said in the first 90 minutes that we met that really came to life, you know, seeing the processing facility and getting to know the family, you know, it went from being like, oh, this will be, you know, a way to pay my rent to, wow, this idea actually really has legs and it's something that I could be passionate about. Luke, what did your parents think? The, the reports back from Maine were he's, well, he's clearly a lot brighter than you are. Good job there. <laughs> 
And it also just feels like he's a very sincere, honest, and trustworthy person. Just sort of qualified him for the position right out of the gate. Didn't matter that the only hospitality experience he had was donuts and he didn't have any you know, real business leadership experience. None of that stuff was intimidating. It was just like, let's make sure we find someone who's generally interested and, and uh, has a work ethic. But Ben was always uh, honest as the day is long. So we've got a business marriage in the making and you get back to New York. I mean, basically that was late August and we discussed an ambition to have this thing open by October 1st and we hadn't signed a lease yet. So there was really no option other than to hit the ground running and running very fast. And I went from being a 40 hour a week guy to a 110, 120 hour a week guy pretty much overnight. Yeah. The startup world is notorious for brutal hours. As you articulated earlier, Luke, success requires a certain intangible characteristic. When you guys think about your early days with limited funding, incredible pressure to get things done super fast, I'm curious if there are some stories of how you think you pulled off the impossible in such a short period and where you got the skills or tools to be able to do that. You know, from my perspective, it was just the confidence that given enough time, enough effort, and enough creative thinking, there was not a problem that we wouldn't be able to overcome. And in some ways meant compromise. Was was this place the picture of perfection when we opened it October 1st? Absolutely not. So I think it was an ability to go over, around, and through on so many problems. And the thing we couldn't compromise was quality, the sustainability, the authenticity of the product. And we knew that other pieces could follow if we could just successfully execute on our number one promise, which is have the best damn lobster roll and help people come in and feel like they'd taken a trip to Maine. Luke, what are your memories of opening day on October 1st or the weeks leading up to it when things seemed to be impossible? Uh, Tell us what was going through your mind and what stands out about that time. October 1st, we're trying to get the plumber to finish piping in the three basin sink. And his name's Sam. What a challenging human being this guy was. Sam would roll up in his black Escalade, jump out, point a finger, grunt something, jump back in the black Escalade, and then now return my phone call for four or five days. And we're on a 30-day timeline we upgraded the electricity service in that space from 25 amps to 50 amps. I mean, 50 amps to run a restaurant is, is almost no power, but that was as much as we could afford. Uh, then a couple days before opening, realized that we needed a food handler's license. Somebody had to have a food handler's license in order to safely serve food. And so I think he stayed up all night and figured out how to cram, study, and take a test the next day so that he could in the Bronx so he could get his food and his license. The day before opening up, uh, he texts and says, hey, the bank account's a little light. And they need to go down to Bowery just to get a trash can. And it was like, bank account's light and it's not getting any heavier. So tie a trash bag off the corner of the door because there's no way another 50 bucks is coming for a trash can right now. It wasn't a well, we don't have a trash can or we don't have a reasonable plumber or we don't have enough power. It was, okay, well, this is what we do have and let's just make it work. And 
in so many ways that defines a lot of the success that Luke's Lobster is today. And we're a completely vertically integrated business where we're either our partnerships with cooperatives of fishermen or investment in wharfs. We sell fuel to fishermen. We source bait from all over the world, inventory it during off-season times when the cost is low so we can level load costs for fishermen. We're one of the largest lobster buyers on the East Coast, one of the largest lobster processors. We've got restaurants domestically that we own, restaurants internationally that we license. We have CPG products. We couple teammates stood up an online market e-commerce business and in the height of the pandemic so that we could sell inventory and get cash back into the business. And we've done all of this stuff on a shoestring budget. I want to take some time to talk a bit about your perspective towards the world, the earth, sustainability. Clearly, this is a really important value at Luke's Lobster. Talk about how you guys see the relationship between the ocean, marine conservation, and business. What does this mean at your company to build a sustainable future? In so many ways, fishermen are the original sustainability officers, the practices that have been in place since the turn of the century to protect female lobsters, baby lobsters, oversized lobsters, were effectively out there feeding and growing the biomass by identifying what part of the stock really needs to be protected. And it's all with the ambition of just leaving the ocean and the biomass a little bit better than we found it. So this concept of heritage is felt in all of these fishing communities that I'm talking about. And that's just such a neat part of the DNA of this fishery. So and I think, though I'm not a Mainer, I'm also lucky to have grown up on the water. And I think both of us have a sense of the importance that it has for really the entire world. And that's from a human perspective to our economy, to our ability to continue to eat as the population grows and, and from an environmental perspective as well. It's the folks that have the most direct exposure to the ocean. They're also the canaries in the coal mine for issues coming to our oceans and how those issues are going to reverberate through the entire global population. So, you know, Maine lobstermen are out there seeing the effects of global warming every day. They're seeing the changing distribution of lobster territory. They're seeing the changing timing of the lobster molting process. They're seeing species in the Gulf of Maine that were never there before. Squid and, and black sea bass and, you know, things that are ultimately predators to the species that fishermen in the Gulf of Maine are used to catching. You know, we also know with the world's growing population the ocean is where people are going to be looking more and more to feed people. So we have a huge responsibility to be stewards of the of the natural resources that we've been able to benefit from, you know, like lobster, but to be creative, to be forward thinking, to do everything we can to to preserve ecosystems and to adapt. And if we can do that in one patch of the Gulf of Maine, then maybe we can scale that around the world. You know, races against climate change, against ecosystem change, those are not going to be won by one group alone. They're going to be won or lost by all of us together because we're all going to feel the effects if we don't figure out the answers to some of these problems. 
So I think working together as, as mission-driven companies and stakeholders in the oceans is really critical. It's something that we're committed to. A couple of things that, that I believe to be true. Climate change is real. Decarbonization work needs to be accelerated. Nobody owns the ocean. And I think that that's something that's important to gain consensus around. And change is important in part of every great business and every great industry. But in order for effective change management to happen, all stakeholders need to be brought to the table. And often those most passionate about change have no idea how to impactfully make change happen. And so a place where I think Luke's has got a great opportunity to help set the table, the voices of fishermen need to be heard. They need to be understood. They need to be incorporated in change. And government needs to be a better partner in listening. And the environmental community needs to be a better partner in listening. And the fishing community needs to be a better partner in listening. It's just, it's amazing how when change comes about, those three groups are often adversaries. I think Luke's has an interesting opportunity to be a leader in that way because we've got trust of a lot of those stakeholders and great relationships with a lot of those stakeholders. And there's no ego here. It's just a, an effort to make sure that all of those voices get heard so that change management happens as effectively as possible. As a business with this perspective, you're squarely within one of the biggest trends in finance, which is ESG. I won't ask you guys if you're going to push to go public, but I'm very curious how you think about the corporation's role in addressing big challenges and big opportunities, big changes, like you say. How should the private sector and the financial industry in particular be thinking about or engaging in change? I think it's a great question, Connor, and I, I probably have more questions about it than I do answers. I don't necessarily love the path that we're heading down right now where big corporations get the opportunity to buy carbon offset credits, and that, in effect, makes them a a greener organization. I think that that was probably perfectly well-intentioned, but now is ultimately just a business perpetuating the problem. So as younger consumers become a larger portion of overall demand, the millennials and Gen Zs seem to be more devoted towards uh, everything that ESG ultimately addresses. I think there will be a more common measuring stick that corporate America will get evaluated against and ultimately push more businesses to looking at making decisions that balance purpose and profit. And I think in a lot of ways, uh, it's the employees and, and the consumers that ultimately will make these demands that will cause industry to shift. I think that it's important that businesses in corporate America are taking on some of this mantle because I think our political system is just set up to give a lot of whiplash and to make it very difficult to make sustainable change at that level. But when businesses and consumers care about something and demand that change happen in a productive way, that can be easier to sustain. That said, a lot of ESG programs look at the numbers and try to check boxes. And a lot of times like carbon offsets as the example, it's a lot easier for somebody to write a check to erase, in theory, the things they do that are harmful by you know, protecting a rainforest somewhere that they've never seen before. 
But what really needs to happen is not just writing checks, but actually looking at your own footprint, looking at your own supply chain, looking at your own emissions, and figuring out how to proactively reduce those. That is where companies in, in corporate America will be able to achieve the, the greatest positive outcomes. So what's Luke's up to today? What are you most excited about? What are you focused on? What keeps you guys excited to show up in the morning? What's really exciting about Luke's right now is just we're getting back to growing our core business. We're signing leases and opening new restaurants. And so that's really exciting. The part of, of the Luke's team that is really kind of hunkered down to live to see another day, so to speak, is, is now getting a chance to reinvest in the business and, and, and grow and add new locations. So I'm super excited about that. I think as we get back to opening new restaurants, you know, we were as shaken as everyone by the pandemic. And I think we are totally committed to things not going back to the way they were, not going back to normal, but doing things better this time around. That extends into decarbonization efforts. You know, as we open these new shacks, we have, you know, energy efficiency guides that are, you know, charting our way to the the equipment that we use and the building methods we use. Uh, we're putting renewable energy into each one of these new shacks. And then we're going back up the supply chain. We're working with fishermen on energy efficiency measures at their wharves, on trialing biodiesel in place of traditional diesel, on getting solar panels on their roofs, and really looking at how, as this company goes from retracting to expanding, we're doing so in a much more sustainable way. On the people side, we're committed to being a better employer than we've ever been. We're committed to a bunch of diversity and inclusion initiatives. We're prioritizing diverse suppliers in our upcoming limited time offer rollouts in our Black-owned brewery program. And we're really excited to be launching a mentorship program for BIPOC students in the Portland area in Maine, so that not only will we have an amazing diverse team at our production facility in Saco, but we'll actually be able to help bring diversity and inclusiveness to the fishery itself by leading BIPOC students through the student licensing program and helping them become licensed commercial fishermen. I am so excited to be able to say that we are emerging from this pandemic really a better company. Consent in Conversation is hosted by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode is produced by our very own Will Gatchel and Chandler Bromstead. Executive produced by me and Rachel Swabby, with editing from Maddie Zampati, and special thanks to creative director Kate Tucker. 